You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now a word from our sponsor, Netscope. Netscope is a worldwide leader in SASE and Zero Trust. Its unified platform, Netscope One, provides optimized access and zero trust security for people, devices, and data anywhere they go, helping customers reduce risk, accelerate performance, and get unrivaled visibility into any cloud, web, and private application activity. To learn more about how Netscope helps customers be ready for anything on their sassy journey, visit netskope.com. The FBI and MI5 warn of Chinese industrial espionage, revelations of TrickBot's privateering role, Russian influence operations target France, Germany, Poland, and Turkey, Chinese APTs target Russian organizations in a cyber espionage effort, Robert M. Lee from Dragos on CISA expanding the Joint Cyber Defense Collaborative, Ben Yellen speaks with Matt Kent from Public Citizen about the American Innovation and Online Choice Act. And who would have thunk it, but NFT scams are pestering Ukraine. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Thursday, July 7th, 2022. In a joint appearance yesterday at the London headquarters of MI5, the British counterintelligence organization, the directors of MI5 and the U.S. FBI issued an unusually direct and bluntly worded warning about the threat of Chinese industrial espionage, much of it cyber espionage. The effort is extensive, focused, and marked by both close attention to detail and an unusually wide net. FBI Director Ray told an audience the Wall Street Journal described as composed of business people, The Chinese government is set on stealing your technology, whatever it is that makes your industry tick, and using it to undercut your business and dominate your market. They're set on using every tool at their disposal to do it. China disagrees. A representative of Beijing's embassy in Washington, Lui Pengyu, complained of U.S. politicians who have been tarnishing China's image and painting China as a threat with false accusations. IBM Securities X-Force this morning published an account of TrickBot's recent activity, the well-known Russian cyber criminal gang, and its new interest in Ukraine. X-Force says, following ongoing research... Our team has uncovered evidence indicating that the Russian-based cybercriminal syndicate TrickBot Group has been systematically attacking Ukraine since the Russian invasion, an unprecedented shift as the group had not previously targeted Ukraine. There's some overlap with other criminal gangs, including the perhaps retired but probably quietly returned Conti operation. IBM says... Between mid-April and mid-June of 2022, the TrickBot Group, tracked by X-Force as ITG23 and also known as Wizard Spider, Dev0193, and the Conti Group, has conducted at least six campaigns, 
two of which have been discovered by X-Force against Ukraine, during which they deployed ICE-ID, Cobalt Strike, Anchor Mail, and Meter Preter. Ukraine is no longer on a near-abroad do-not-touch list. IBM says prior to the Russian invasion, ITG-23 had not been known to target Ukraine, and much of the group's malware was even configured to not execute on systems if the Ukrainian language was detected. So, TrickBot, up till now known for its straightforwardly mercenary interest in banking trojans and the like, appears to be a Russian privateer after all, an instrument of state power that's permitted to realize a profit from its operations. X-Force elaborates, The observed activities reported in this blog highlight the trend of this group choosing targets that align with Russian state interests against the backdrop of the ongoing conflict. In addition to an announcement by the Conti Ransomware Group that they would act in support of Russian state interests at the beginning of the invasion of Ukraine, leaked chats between ITG-23 members indicated that two senior individuals within the group had previously discussed in mid-April 2021 the targeting of entities that work against the Russian Federation and agreed that they were Russian patriots. Additionally, the executive director of Bellingcat claimed to have received a tip that a cyber-criminal group was in communication with Russia's Federal Security Service, the FSB. The six campaigns X-Force has tracked show evidence of more precise targeting than TrickBot has typically shown, and that targeting aligns closely with Russian state interests. Establishing identity conditions for threat groups is notoriously difficult. They are protean, shifting, and their name is usually legion. The Washington Post, for one, takes particular notice of some Conti veterans, either current gang members or alumni, who seem to be working for TrickBot. It's like an exorcism, really. It's hard to tell the demons without a scorecard, and far be it from us to offer his infernal majesty, prince of this world, advice, but even the demons have trouble telling themselves apart. Or so we hear. Russian influence operations are now concentrating on opening fissures in NATO, Voice of America reports. Moscow's concentrating its efforts on what it perceives as high-payoff targets in France and Germany, whose governments are widely perceived as softer in their support for Ukraine than are NATO's more easterly members like the Baltic states and Poland and its non-continental members like the UK, Canada, and the US. Poland, which shares a border and a complicated history with Ukraine, and Turkey, which controls access to the Black Sea. The efforts are very much in the Russian style, entropic and aimed at confusion as opposed to persuasion. Cobalt Strike is often mentioned in dispatches as a penetration testing tool that threat actors often turn to malign use. Other such tools are also susceptible to abuse. Palo Alto Network's Unit 42 reports that Cozy Bear, generally regarded as a unit of Russia's SVR, is deploying Brute Retel C4, a pen testing tool in use since December 2020 in a range of cyber espionage campaigns. Unit 42 doesn't formally attribute the campaign to Cozy Bear or even Russia, but it does offer circumstantial evidence that points in that direction. The particular style of attack, observers agree, is unusually stealthy and evasive. Unit 42 has some advice on what to look for. Sentinel Labs reports noticeably increased Chinese cyber espionage activity directed against Russian targets. 
In this, Sentinel Labs independently confirms recent reports by Ukraine's CERT of Beijing's interest in its sometime friends in Moscow. The relationship, again, is complicated. The report says, On June 22, 2022, CERT-UA publicly released Alert 4860, which contains a collection of documents built with the Royal Road Malicious Document Builder, themed around Russian government interests. Sentinel Labs has conducted further analysis of CERT-UA's findings and has identified supplemental Chinese threat activity. And of course, a de facto alliance, or better, an opportunistic collaboration of convenience, in no way obviates the need for mutually suspicious partners to collect against one another. The report says, China's recent intelligence objectives against Russia can be observed in multiple campaigns following the invasion of Ukraine, such as Scarab, Mustang Panda, Space Pirates, and now the findings here. Our analysis indicates this is a separate Chinese campaign, but specific actor attribution is unclear at this time. It is a fishing expedition. The report concludes, We assess with high confidence that the Royal Road-built malicious documents, delivered malware, and associated infrastructure are attributable to Chinese threat actors. Based on our observations, there's been a continued effort to target Russian organizations by this cluster through well-known attack methods, the use of malicious documents exploiting end-day vulnerabilities with lures specifically relevant to Russian organizations. Overall, the objectives of these attacks appear espionage-related, but the broader context remains unavailable from our standpoint of external visibility. So, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, sort of, but only within certain limits, and the line is drawn somewhere on the other side of espionage. The five families arrange these things more amicably, although even there some wise guy might get whacked and end up in the Meadowlands. Forget about it, Jake, it's East Rutherford, or so we hear. And finally, hey everybody, dog bites man, some NFT are scams. No, really, they are, attaching themselves like a nasty boil to the charitable body of Ukrainian relief efforts. The Ukrainian government and various celebrities in sympathy with the Ukrainian cause have sold NFTs, non-fungible tokens, and if you're unclear about what these are, find yourself a crypto bro and talk among yourselves, to raise funds for the Ukrainian military and various related causes. They've enjoyed some success, and success draws scammers the way meat draws flies. Investigators at the Ukrainian OSINT firm Mulfar and the editors of the AIN News Service have found that the NFTs in question are being flacked as Zelensky NFT, which depict the Ukrainian president as a range of superheroes. Avengers, for the most part, as far as we can tell. The purveyors of these NFTs say they're I Am Ukraine Studio. No one can really find out much about them beyond Mulfar's claim that I Am Ukraine is a small group of Russians with one Belarusian tagging along. The outfit appears to exist only in its Zelensky NFT, and where the money you might spend on one of the tokens would go is anybody's guess, but it's a safe bet it won't be to anything anyone other than the proprietors of I Am Ukraine would recognize as a good cause. So keep your altcoins in your wallets, friends. The best NFT ever was one offered by Monty Python's John Cleese a year or so ago. 
He drew a picture of the Brooklyn Bridge and offered it up as an NFT. And who could argue with that? Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Matt Kent is the competition policy advocate for Public Citizen, a nonprofit consumer advocacy organization. My caveat co host, Ben Yellen, recently spoke with Matt Kent about the bipartisan American Innovation and Online Choice Act and the potential privacy and security benefits of the legislation. So essentially, about two years ago, there was a big push for big tech accountability, um, using the antitrust laws. And this is a bipartisan thing. Democrats and Republicans have slightly, I think, different reasons uh, for for opposing the big tech companies, but uh, they coalesced uh, around a series of bills uh, in the House Judiciary Committee. They were like, this was two years ago, there were wall-to-wall hearings, all kinds of legislative activity. It was really cool. Like it was actually what congressional committees are supposed to do, right? They hauled in the tech executives, like Jeff Bezos had to had to answer questions in, in front of everybody. Like it was great. And they produced like a very thorough, over a thousand page report on the practices, the anti-competitive practices of, of the big tech companies. So out of that effort came a package of six bills uh, aimed at big tech uh, accountability through antitrust competition. A lot has happened since those bills passed out of House Judiciary, ups and downs. But uh, where we are now is two of those bills 
have really sort of taken the momentum and everything is largely settled on the Senate versions. So the two bills are the American Innovation and Choice Online Act. Uh, that's the Klobuchar-Grassley bill. Uh, you'll, you'll hear it referred to as the self-preferencing bill. But there's also uh, the open app marketplace app, and that's from Blumenthal and Blackburn. I just I just want to pause and say that the pairings on these uh, these co sponsorships are just uh, just wild stuff. So for the non legal people, that means you or I as consumers wouldn't have the ability to sue these tech companies directly for their anti competitive practices. It would have to be instituted by the AGs or uh, the DOJ. That's right. That's right. So from that that point, a lot of the arguments against the bill are, well, we're concerned that a sort of wild-eyed state AG would pick up a case that touches on content moderation or privacy and security, and through a series of bad decisions, you know, that's that part is sort of of murky in Big Tech's argument of exactly how these, the legal arguments and how this would bear out, but they're saying the whole thing would whiplash and, you know, we'd no longer be able to moderate content. You know, we would be scared because of litigation, which is sort of a laughable argument when you think about, <laughs> when you think about the resources that these, uh, these companies have at, at their disposal. There's also arguments that the bills would affect national security negatively. That has died down a little bit. You know, if you look at the text of the self-preferencing bill, there are, Many, many carve-outs regarding China, companies owned by China. I would say that it is well covered in both the text of the bill and sort of the affirmative offenses or affirmative defenses available to the companies that they won't have to like give over sensitive data to China or Chinese-owned companies. That was like a, right. a big part, I think, of the concern at committee, um, which is why a lot of these changes were made. That has died away a little bit when it became pretty clear that uh, TikTok would be a covered entity under under these bills. So they'd essentially be be prohibited from from doing the same practices uh, as sort of the big four ostensibly American companies. Although the question as to whether they act in American interests all the time is is an open one. Right, it sure is. As I I know you to be a good prognosticator of what happens in in Congress. What do you see as the major obstacles on the Senate floor? Uh, and then going back to the House side, and where do you see this going over the next several months? Oh, oh, Ben, if I knew, I'd, I'd, uh, I'd be a much happier person right now. But so what? <laughs> this keeps you up at night. Well, I mean, this, yeah, this is like the, the number one thing, you know, I'm, I'm working on right now. And I would say the issue, it's sort of interesting. The issue is not whether they'd pass if put to a vote. Because they would, they have, you know, at least 20 Republicans who would go and a bulk of Democrats. Like, I don't think there's any question if, if forced to vote on this bill, like looking at the polls and where big tech accountability stands, I think any sane chief of staff or member of Congress would understand that they need to support these bills if the vote is, is, is there. Now, the big question is convincing leadership to put these votes on the floor because there are some in the Democratic caucus who are concerned that, in their words, the bills would endanger their chances uh, at the midterm being forced to vote on the bill. Now, you know, we argue that this would help your midterm chances by showing voters that you're actually doing something about big tech accountability. 
I think without, you know, naming names, some members of Congress are concerned that if they're forced to take this vote and vote in favor, they would lose significant fundraising support from uh, big tech companies or consulting firms or just the whole sort of ecosystem. That's Matt Kent from Public Citizen speaking with my caveat co-host, Ben Yellen. You can hear an extended version of this interview on this week's Caveat podcast. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And I'm pleased to be joined once again by Robert M. Lee. He is the CEO at Dragos. Uh, Rob, it's always great to welcome you back to the show. Um, we recently had uh, an announcement from CISA uh, that they have expanded the Joint Cyber Defense Collaborative to include industrial control systems. This, of course, is your neck of the woods. I wanted to get your take on this development here. This is uh, good news, yes? It's absolutely good news. And so, you know, I I think when you look at what CISA has been doing really well since they started is they're taking part in the community, right? It's not, let me speak to you from D.C. in the pulpit that is the D.C. bubble and try to tell an operator in California and Washington and and Oregon, you know, how to do things, you know, without visiting them. Because that can come off very tone deaf. But even when, when Chris Krebs was there, he was going to DEF CON and Black Hat and RSA, he was out in the community, right? And Jen Easterly has done exactly the same thing. Let me get out there, part of the community, be there, encourage people to join us, encourage people to cooperate with us, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I don't look to CISA to solve the problem, which is where I think, you know, I'm, I'm not the person setting the rules for CISA, so it doesn't really matter my opinion, but my opinion <laughs> is I don't think CISA needs to be solving the problem. And I think Congress a lot of times looks to them to solve the problem. Oh, there was there was an attack. What is CISA doing about it? I'm like, what? They're not an operational agent. Like, that, the government isn't protecting day-to-day infrastructure. That's not how that works. Um, it's on the asset owners and their vendors and community that they're leaning on. It's not like you're going to airdrop a team in from CISA to go do security operations at a power company for a month. It's not happening. Uh, should not happen. Uh, and so the idea that CISA needs to be doing everything and fixing everything, they're not resourced for that. And, and it's just not possible to scale that across all the different critical infrastructure industries. What CISA can do and what they do extremely well at is engage the community, level up the conversation, fight for resources for the community to do work that they need to do, provide best practices, basically set the rules of the game, but don't be a player in the game. And when you look at uh, the JCDC, I was really excited to see it extend out to ICS because one of CISA's core mandates is the protection of critical infrastructure. 
And the critical part of critical infrastructure is ICS. And for too long, it's gotten a backseat to everything else. And it is infuriating. When I go when I go talk to electric companies and manufacturing companies and pharma companies and oil companies and everybody else, the private conversations is they're generally infuriated at how much attention gets paid to a cloud provider or uh, you know, the latest vulnerability impacting Microsoft, but not to industrial control systems. It's always, you know, there's been an ICS CERT and it got taken away unceremoniously. And then we had an ICS JBGBG conferences and they kind of got downplayed. And like it's always been like gambling infrastructure is more important than electric infrastructure. You know, it's like, what are you doing? You know, this is this is, you know, not everything is actually critical. Um, and so to see JCDC and then Jenny Easterly come out and talk about the importance of ICS, the f- focus on it why we need to elevate this conversation, to me that's perfect. I've already started hearing critiques of, yeah, but what is the JCTC even doing? Like, you know, sure, yet another information sharing group or operational collaboration or whatever. Like, I think there's plenty of critiques to throw, but the reality is they're leveling up the conversation and they're including ICS where it should be. We should be popping bottles and being happy about that. So I'm, I'm very excited that the conversation is getting started. But no, don't expect a government agency that's not resourced to fix your security issues to fix your security issues with some new group. That's not the point. To what degree is there active collaboration within the ICS community? You know, your organization, other organizations who are listed as being some of the ones initially joining this effort. To what degree does that exist? Inside the JCDC today, on the ICS level, not so much. I mean, it's just getting started, um, yeah. and I don't, I don't know. I mean, even though we're a part of it, I mean, I'm excited about it. I don't actually know what their intention is fully with it yet. I think it's still getting baked uh-huh. a little bit, but I'm fully supportive of that. Inside of the ICS community, I would say it depends on the industry. As an example, in the uh, electric community, and we always talk about them, but they've done a phenomenal job of setting up the ISAC, the ARC, the little informal information sharing groups, sharing with the MS ISAC and the multi states, you know. And so, like, there's a lot of sharing and collaboration and work. And I think what I tend to find is there's more actual collaboration when the government's not present than when they are. And so the forums for that sharing, the forums for the collaboration is actually not through government forums as much. I'd like to see that shift, but that's going to be based on building trust. As an example, if an electric utility or a manufacturer or oil company tells something to CISA, CISA hasn't done anything wrong here, I'm not picking on it, it's just an example. If CISA were to turn around and that would end up in the media or that'd be shared out to foreign foreign partners and so forth. You know, you're going to have information sharing dry up real quick. And so I think right. there's a trust building exercise that's needed because there has been some historical mistakes. But no one in the infrastructure community that I've ever come across is just anti um, that succeeding. Most of them are just so focused on doing the mission that if you're there to support the mission, come on board. If you're there to talk about one day how you might support the mission, sorry, we don't have time for it. And so nobody's against any of these things. It's just we want to stay focused because we all have limited resources. And I do view, again, some of CISA's steps here recently as being very encouraging to the development of that interaction. Hmm. It's a seat at the table, right? Exactly. Again, I mean, 
when we were talking about, and again, I, I, it sounds, it sounds like critiques of CISA, and it's really not. And it always comes off that way. I feel like I always had to be like, "Here's why I love you," but let me give you one suggestion. But here's why I love you. You know, it's like, it's like right. they're they're amazing people there. But a great example of this is you're, you know, we're talking shields up, phenomenal message out to the community. Hey, let's go shields up mm. the war in Ukraine, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. At the same time, though. When we've had major incidents and impacts before, like solar winds, there was almost no discussion about the ICS component of that, and and so there's a lot of good messaging in general. But if you look at the ICS specific part, again, the critical part of critical infrastructure, it's either usually absent or it's such a broad stroke brush of ICS that it doesn't actually apply beyond like an industry or two. And one of the things that I think is a really unique opportunity for CISA is as it is the front door to government and it is the critical infrastructure agency. And there are, you know, 16 critical infrastructure um, groups or, or sectors. There should be a specialization on each sector at CISA to take anything that's coming out and be able to translate and go, hey, here's what that means, not for ICS, but here's what that means for positive train control systems on rail, because that's the type of ICS that we're concerned with a safety impact. And here's what you do in PTC instead of what you might do in a gas turbine and an electric power provider. But instead, mm -hmm. right now, we're in the phase of we either don't talk about ICS or we talk about ICS as this broad thing that doesn't really exist. And so I'm hopeful that CISA takes the opportunity to start developing expertise individual sectors because that's where they're going to show a lot of value. All right. Well, Robert M. Lee, thanks for joining us. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technology. Our amazing CyberWire team is Liz Irvin, Elliot Peltzman, Trey Hester, Brandon Karp, Eliana White, Peru Prakash, Justin Sabi, Rachel Gelfin, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Hey all, Rick here. At N2K CyberWire, we're dedicated to continuously improving the quality of the news and commentary on our network. That's why we're inviting you to participate in our 2024 audience survey. It only takes a few minutes and your feedback is invaluable. Plus, you'll have the chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card as a thank you for your time. Head on over to cyberwire.com survey. That's cyberwire.com survey to share your feedback now. And now a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. 
Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.